you have promised, you can be found here in this place. Pray, Lord, that you, by your Spirit moving in us, through us, among us, as your people gathered, pray, Lord, that you would unite us in your heart, unite us in common purpose for the glory of your kingdom. It's in your name, Lord Christ, that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Arrest their attention. It's the first principle of good oration, right? Good uh, rhetoric, really, in general. Arrest their attention. And then do what? Well, we all learned in junior high. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them. And tell them what you told them, right? You grab their attention. And then you tell them that. Now, ancient rhetoric did not always follow these same rules. But interestingly enough, if we turn our attention to our epistle reading from uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians and St. Paul's words there, it actually follows, in a sense, that uh, skeletal outline that we all learn once upon a time. Because we see both St. Paul arresting the attention of his original hearers his original audience, as well as telling them in these few short verses precisely what he's going to tell him, tell them rather, over the rest of his letter. You see, the call to renounce divisions is the first thing that Paul leads with, and it is the central theme of his letter to the Corinthians. So thus, after his you know, opening words, uh, you know, kind of his uh, words of, of introduction, In his opening prayer, which Paul always started his letters with, Paul writes in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And in case that wasn't enough to arrest their attention, he continues, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Uh-oh. El Jefe knows we've been quarreling, right? This is central to Paul's letter. Agree in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't have divisions. Now, on one level, it's hard not to read those words and think, um, pardon me, Paul, but have you ever actually been in a church? Actually, have you ever been in a group of more than two people at a time? Have no divisions among you? Agree in the Lord? Not likely. But what Paul goes on to say in that sentence, really it explains more specifically what he means. There should be no divisions, which we'll get to in a minute, but rather there should be unity, noi kai ente aute nome. In the ESV version that we read from, that's rendered in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, you who know me know that it is rare that I take exception with the ESV. But no translation is perfect. And here's one of those cases where I think they exercised some interpretive latitude as they chose meanings for those words that make it sound really incredibly cerebral, right? Have the same mind and the same judgment. Make it a point to agree in your understanding. 
But the word here, noe, from nous in Greek, that we have translated here as mind, can actually mean heart, soul, mind, or even essence or being. So I fear that to lock in and, you know, have the same mind is a little too myopically focused on the, the reasoning faculties, which isn't surprising uh, an interpretive choice given that this translation does come out of the late 20th century evangelical movement that really does elevate the life of the mind, sometimes to the exclusion of other parts of the soul. And even more so the word nome, which we have here as judgment. This word can additionally mean purpose or intent. So we've got a word that can mean your, your essence or your being and a word that can mean purpose or intent. And in light of where Paul goes in the letter, especially when he gets to his great body analogy about the church functioning just like a physical body with each part working together and sort of mutually caring for and feeding one another, just the way a human body works, to be the presence of Christ to one another in the world, I think it's more reasonable in light of that, where Paul goes, to think that rather than simply calling on the believers in Corinth to think the same way and believe the same things, he is more calling upon them to embrace the heart of what it means to be the presence of Jesus to one another and the common purpose of being his gospel presence in their community. Common heart and common purpose. That is what St. Paul is calling for. Too many Christian bodies have gotten pigeonholed into reading this passage as a call to sort of intellectual conformity. We all have to believe the same precise doctrinal statements. And of course, my church's doctrinal statement is the right one. So we all have to believe that, right? And we all have to conform to the exact same lifestyle choices and it is an expression of our doctrinal conformity. Now, I'll admit that can be highly effective, a highly effective way to keep a body together. I mean, just look at the Mormons, right? Programmed conformity at its finest. But what St. Paul is calling for here is a conformity of purpose and a unity of heart. Conformity of purpose and a unity of heart. And that can allow for certain doctrinal differences, not in the basics of the gospel, of course. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I mean differences of opinion over means and methods and all sorts of secondary and tertiary issues, just as the apostolic church in Acts demonstrated. Eat bacon, don't eat bacon. Doesn't matter. The gospel is what matters, right? There's freedom in Christ. Circumcise, don't circumcise. The one thing you can't do is inflict your viewpoint on the whole church. What we find throughout the apostolic church and throughout the apostolic tradition as we trace it through history is a church that is unified in purpose while embracing the diversity of members, cultures, and expressions. That's a timeless word for any gathering of the church. We are not a conformity and performance-oriented society. To say everybody agree 
on one level, that would be an exercise in futility. We are, however, about sharing the heart of Jesus and the common purpose of being his hands and feet to one another and to the world in which he has placed us. And that unites us. Viewed through that lens, we can acknowledge that there is far more which unites us than that which divides us. That's why we gather every week around Jesus' word and at Jesus' table. Reminders that it is the hunger to know and to share the love of Christ and to join together in his presence that brings us together from the disparate places that we would otherwise find ourselves. The church's earliest recorded communion prayer is contained in a writing called the Didache, shorthand for the, the teaching of the 12 apostles, which has been dated to around 90 AD, so within a generation, actually within a half generation of some of the writings in the New Testament. And this liturgy reflects on the bread of the Eucharist in this way. It prescribes that the priest is meant to pray, quote, as this broken bread was wheat scattered upon the mountains, but has been brought together and become one, so let thy church be gathered together. As you took wheat, pulled it together, and made a loaf of bread, do that same thing here in our midst as, our, as your church. That is the unity, that is the oneness that St. Paul is calling forth in the Corinthian church. That is the oneness that we, the Church of Jesus Christ in Fort Collins, Colorado, known as Christ Our Hope Anglican Church, that's what we're called to express. Yes, we are as disparate as kernels of wheat sown on a hillside. But week after week, through the working of the Holy Spirit, just like those wheat kernels were collected and processed and kneaded together into a unified loaf of bread, for us to celebrate Christ's sacrifice in body and blood. So too, we are mixed up and formed together as one unified body in Christ. Different perspectives, different experiences, different concerns, yet one. Because we share together in the unifying heart and purpose of Christ. Next, Paul goes on to speak specifically, though, about an anti-kingdom feature. An anti-kingdom feature that was specifically standing in the way of this unified heart and purpose in this church in Corinth. Namely, an infatuation with the cult of personality that had cropped up. He says in verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And we know from what Paul goes on to say in the letter, as well as other sources about the climate of the ancient city of Corinth, that there was a cultural drive in that city to climb the ladder of status. And some of the chief ways of doing that in ancient Corinth, really in the ancient Roman world in general, was by having the patronage and therefore the ability to sort of name drop well-known, well-respected, well-connected social elites within the city. 
And clearly, those who had come to faith in Jesus within Corinth carried that same mentality with them into the church. In fact, as the letter unfolds, it becomes clear that those who did not have the connections to do this sort of corporate, or not corporate ascent, social ascent in the world actually found, oh, I couldn't do that out there because I didn't know anybody of import, but I can do it here. Now I can do this in the church. Now I'm enabled to do the same thing that this town is so uh, crazed with. They came to realize the importance of some of the apostolic leaders they'd been privileged to rub shoulders with, possibly even been baptized by. I mean, Apollos was a brilliant and respected preacher. So those who had been baptized by Apollos bandy his name about trying to claim that they had an an inside edge on asserting Apollos-like leadership within the church in Corinth. Those that sought to stump them, who had been baptized by St. Peter, of course, retort with, well, I mean, he's the chief of the apostles. I mean, that's got to count for something, right? We're Peter's people. The cult of personality seems to rear its ugly head perennially within the church. This or that famous preacher ends up drawing thousands to his church while the pastor just down the street who is just as faithful to the scriptures faithfully steers a congregation of a hundred. And Paul sees this and he throws his hands up in the air. This is not the way the church should work. Christ is all that counts. None of these people were crucified for you. You weren't baptized into any of their name to be buried with them in their death so that you might be raised with them in their resurrection. Christ is all that counts. So it doesn't matter whose name you can drop. It makes no difference who baptized you. If you were baptized with Christian baptism, all that matters is following Christ. But we still do this. I see it a little uh, in a humorous way. Every time I'm in a worship gathering with a bishop or a famous preacher or speaker, right? If it's a Eucharistic gathering, I will guarantee you that the bishop's line to distribute communion is at least a third longer than any other line in the room. If the bishop or, or one of these speakers, you know, avails themselves to prayer ministry, I guarantee you that line is probably twice as long as any other prayer line in the room. We do it. We still do it. But on a more sobering note, we still see this whenever conflict arises within the church as well, don't we? People draw up sides, even when told not to. I've seen that too. I know, and I like that leader, so I'm going to pick their side. What are we fighting for again? I don't even remember, but I'm going to pick that leader's side. And third-party burden-bearing, carrying offenses that didn't even involve you, that you don't even really understand or know about, and all other sorts of patterns and behaviors that do nothing but damage the body get activated. But St. Paul says, there is no place for that because we are meant to all be unified not under a particular leader but under the heart and purpose of Christ now I won't pretend for a minute that that is easy 
but contending for that unifying heart and purpose is the most important work a body of Christ can do. Well, there's one final implication of St. Paul's words. If he spoke against this anti-kingdom motion, he also sees it as an anti-gospel role of division in the body. What do I mean by that? He says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, Paul is not implying that there is a dichotomy between the preaching and the sacramental ministries of the church. I, for one, am grateful for that. That's good news for me. But understanding the way that the Corinthians were using this sort of baptismal pedigree as a bid for power and leadership within the church, St. Paul is contrasting not the, the ministry of preaching versus the ministry of baptizing, Rather, he's contrasting this attitude about baptism with the attitude of the gospel, which St. Paul was a preacher and steward of. Christ is united. Therefore, when he talks about not coming to baptize, he's reminding them of his own example, meaning he did not come among the Corinthians to gain followers or disciples for himself which is the flip side to the coin from the way the Corinthians were approaching baptism as patronage. So that's not what I came for. Paul's ministry was not about gaining a personal following because he came to preach the gospel. And he would not try to draw a personal following because that would run contrary to the power of the message he proclaimed. The gospel is all about Jesus, about the way he came to unite all things, things earthly and heavenly in himself. The gospel is shaped by the vision of a new heaven and a new earth, which will one day be joined together with Christ at the very center ruling and giving the very light to that existence, to this new creation. So for Paul, anything that militates against the experiencing of this union, this oneness under the rule of Christ, even here and now, for Paul, that is anti-gospel. That is not the kingdom. The power of the gospel that St. Paul was sent to preach is the power to transform. Transform allegiances, social classes, hindrances and brokennesses, hard hearts, ignorance, arrogance, and animosity, all transformed by the love of Christ. Transformed into a people and a place where the, the newness of life, a, a hint, a glimpse of this new heaven and new earth, where that newness is experienced and expressed. Now, we can't make ourselves into a church like that. If I knew the secret to that, we'd be doing it. It's a work of the Spirit, but we can hunger for it. We can desire it and pray for it, and where we're able, we can work toward it. In a season of change and transition like the one that we are headed into as a parish, we look 
at the prospect of moving our physical location on a Sunday morning. It is paramount that we commit ourselves to this prayerful effort to live, to walk, to be in unity. Because the call of Christ upon us, the call of St. Paul through this text, is to embrace this unity of heart and purpose. And allow that to be the first principle we walk out as the Spirit leads us forward. Leads us forward in hope. So let's pray for the Lord's grace to do that work in our midst. Lord, as I just said to my brothers and sisters, we can't manufacture it. We can't do it. All we can do is hunger for it. I believe, help thou my unbelief. I want to be that kind of church. Lord, do that in our midst. Lord, I want to be that kind of follower of yours, committed to your heart, to your purpose in my life and in this world. Lord, do that work in our hearts. Do that work in our midst. Do that work by your spirit, we pray. As you descend upon us again and again in fresh and renewing ways. As chapters close and new ones open, do your work in our midst, Lord, we pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.